The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. And welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am Ed Chung, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. I have the pleasure of filling in for Leslie for a second straight day, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where, again, we're having a beautiful spring-like day, at least for most of the day. Uh, For those of you listening who would like to be part of our conversation today, uh, feel free to call in at 1-888-6LESLIE. That's 1-888-6LESLIE. 653-7543. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Leslie Marshall and follow me as well at Ed Chung Tweets. That's E-D-C-H-U-N-G Tweets. Uh, before we get into our show, let's just start off with a couple of headlines. Uh, we had the ever-escalating tensions with North Korea continue as uh, one president, Kim Jong-un, threatens to attack the island of Guam, a U.S. territory in the Pacific Ocean, where the United States has a pretty significant military base. And at the same time, that president is calling the president of the United States senile and bereft of reason. We'll just continue without additional comment and wait for a response from 45, which I'm sure is going to come soon. And uh, President Trump is not only picking a fight with uh, North Korea, he's also starting a war of words with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell tweeting at him that he couldn't get it done, referring to uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act and telling McConnell to get back to work. I'm sure that's really going to motivate the GOP when they come back from the August recess. But on to a different topic. Uh, Yesterday, uh, we took some time to devote the show to issues that the federal government will begin to grapple with in the fall, and specifically the GOP's tax reform plan that could significantly disrupt the steady economic and jobs growth that started under President Obama several years ago. And we also talked about the importance of judicial nominations and how Trump is transforming the federal judiciary into one that is based on extreme ideological views instead of things like judicial temperament, legal acumen, intellect and reason. And so we're going to continue today to take time while, you know, the the, the news is not as, um, you know, is, isn't coming at us uh, all the time and, and take the time to talk about another issue uh, that I'm working on, actually, as vice president of criminal justice reform at CAP. And we're going to devote the entire show to this topic, how to help people who have been convicted of a crime and serve time in prison to come back to their communities and live meaningful and productive lives. And so instead of talking to uh, researchers or policy wonks, and don't get me wrong, they're, they're doing a lot of great work and we need people to continue to consider policy and research in this space, I thought it'd be great if uh, you heard from two people who are not only on the ground helping formerly incarcerated people out, but also have personally been affected by the criminal justice system. So 
With me in studio are two amazing people, uh, Lauren Hodge, President and Executive Director of Mission Launch, which is an organization that coordinates and provides services for women and men in the D.C. and Baltimore regions to help them restart their lives outside of prison. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Teresa Hodge, co-founder of Mission Launch and the Director of Strategy and Innovation. And yes, Lauren and Teresa are related. Teresa is <laughs> Lauren's mom. We have this powerful mother-daughter combination here, and uh, we have the pleasure of uh, getting to hear their story today. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. It's good to be here and good to be on the Leslie Marshall Show. So today, talking about reentry and talking about criminal justice reform, I want to start first about the company that you all started, Mission Launch. So Lauren, as president, give us a description of what Mission Launch is all about, and then we'll get into how you started the company and, and some of the backstory. Sure. So Mission Launch is a 501c3 based here in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore metro region. Um, it was uh, started, we started doing the work in 2013. Um, we actually got our 501c3 um, officially in 2012, though. And what we decided, we realized um, from personal experience and uh, interviewing some folks, is that really there need to be more pathways. Pathways to jobs, pathways to entrepreneurship, pathways actually to information and technology. Um, so in the past, we've worked with hackathons, we've done the civic tech and coding, and right now we're really excited about a regional uh, inclusive workforce initiative. That's really looking at the economy here and how to get jobs and entrepreneurship opened up for folks. That's terrific. And just so, this is just me. I've, I've never really understood what a hackathon is. What's a hackathon? <laughs> okay, so my best description for folks, I tell them, I was like, separate the words, hack and then a thon. Um, so basically, hack is like you're sitting there, you have a problem, and you're just going to crank away at it until you solve it. And the, the a thon part is really the marathon. So uh, the hackathon model usually works well in the tech community and colleges. There are some that are 24 hours, so you can imagine tons of Red Bull random naps in closets, mm -hmm. um, and people come together and they usually stand for about 60 seconds. They pitch a problem or an opportunity. Teams organically form and fall apart and reform. And they come up with a solution usually within 24 to 72 hours. So this is all in terms of problem solving for issues that are facing people coming out of prison. Yes. Yeah, so ours, we um, organized one of um, what we believe one of the first, which was specifically focused on prison reentry. So we had formerly incarcerated people. We had service providers. We had government agencies all come in, stand and pitch. Um, and we've been doing this really for the last three years. Um, and it gives us an opportunity to hear firsthand what the problems are and actually get grassroots solutions to them. That's, that's terrific. And Teresa, so this, the way that Mission Launch started, let's let's go way back. Way back. Yeah, way back. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this is personal to you all. Sure. It's something that uh, started, um, you're somebody who is formerly incarcerated as well. Yes. Tell us that story, um, How even before, what were you doing before uh, you, you became involved in the justice system? And then uh, take us through that. Okay, excellent. Well, what's interesting is my case started in 2000 to 2001. So what's important to know is I'm talking about an event that took place a very long time ago. But I was an entrepreneur and a business person. And when the company that I co-founded was investigated, I became responsible. I went to court to defend both myself and the company. We both lost. And I was sentenced to 87 months, which is seven years and three months, as a first-time white-collar nonviolent person. You know, when I went to prison, I realized that was really pretty significant um, for my charges. I met a lot of women who had similar circumstances, 
but you know, a, I had uh, or they had about a third of my sentence. And so while I was in prison, I was very fortunate to have a good support system. Lauren um, supported me through that journey. She was just graduating from college. She would come up and visit. And in general, we just decided to take this life event that came out of nowhere for us and to figure out how could we not only help me repurpose my life, but how we could help other people. So we just began designing solutions that would be important to me and also the women who I had met and then consequently the men that we met along the way that also needed help just resetting their lives. Yeah, so going back to, uh, you know, you said your first time nonviolent white collar uh, offense, uh, cr- that's what you were convicted mm-hmm. for, a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. And so you, you didn't have any uh, other uh, interaction or, or involvement with the justice system prior to that. And so this was kind of, uh, can we say it was a shock to you in terms of getting into the system oh, and ab- spending its, you know, a significant time there? Absolutely. It was extremely, I, I was the first person in my family and in my community of network uh, to experience this. Prior to that, I had maybe been to traffic court um, and maybe only once in my life for that. So I didn't know what to expect. And I was kind of naive. I didn't realize at the time that the government had a significant track record that if they indict you, you have a 95% chance of going to prison. I didn't understand the facts and stats. I thought, okay, if there was, you know, we ran afoul, if something happened, I'll go, tell my story, get a slap on the wrist, and move forward. And instead, I received an 87-month federal prison sentence. And so when you were incarcerated, how far away were you from your family? I was at Alderson, West Virginia. It's the first and oldest uh, female prison camp in the country. I was about five hours away from my mother and um, sisters and about five hours away from Lauren as well. She was living at the time in Virginia Beach. So it was a challenge for my family to come and see me and spend time with me. So we're going to continue this story. And, uh, you know, you previewed it a bit in terms of the people that you met while you were incarcerated. And Laura, we also want to get your perspective. I mean, you're you're in college at this time, or recently graduated from yeah. college, and uh, I can't imagine what, what that must have been for you. But uh, we're gonna get into this story. They're gonna be with us all, th- all throughout the show. This is uh, Lauren and Teresa Hodge, and you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after these messages. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the day, Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress. Uh, the number here is 1-888-6-LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-7543. We're talking about uh, re-entering from life, uh, re-entering to life after prison with Teresa Hodge and Lauren Hodge of Mission Launch and their incredible story. And Lauren, we left off before the break talking about the fact that you were coming out, you're right, you know, right out, out of college, college. yeah. Um, and your mom was uh, in prison. And so for you, what were you going through at that time? Uh, just tell us what, what you were, what you were feeling, the emotions you were, you were uh, experiencing. Yeah. So actually, um, I graduated from uh, undergrad on a Saturday, and mom's court case had started on that Tuesday. So we had managed to get through um, pretty much most of my education years. Um, I was coming out at the time before it was officially declared the recession, mm-hmm. and I had several friends who were just like, we can't get jobs. And actually, even myself, I couldn't get a job um, in D.C. because I came back. I'm from the Maryland area. So I came back home, and I was just fortunate that I had some connections still in the Norfolk, Virginia area where I went to college. 
and they hired me. And so if you can imagine you're coming home, normally you're prepared to totally like mooch off of your parents, <laughs> um, which is what most of my friends did, except for at that time, my mom was actually beginning to kind of go through her court case process. Right. And so my mom's in transition, I'm in transition. And so far our family was actually a pretty tense time. And then I actually um, had to be prepared to uh, testify as a character witness. And so um, I think for us and as a family, it was like she said, this was the first experience we had. It was really just discombobulating, Yeah. right? So there's no clean answer yeah. for that. So how often were you able to go see your mom while she was in prison? I mean, five hours is not a short trip. Yeah, no. So I think I can honestly say that through this journey, there has been um, extreme uh, blessings and gifts, and we were really fortunate. My first job, I was actually hired by a friend. Um, we had both volunteered for the American Cancer Society. He had graduated uh, two years before me. And he knew what was going on and he offered me a job. And so what he had cut of basically a deal with me was like, look, as long as you get your work done, if you got to leave early to head out to see your mom, I'm cool. And so I was actually able to do my work, drive up to West Virginia from Virginia Beach. I had really great friends. A lot of my friends who at the time were mostly some of my guy friends were like, we don't want you to drive through West Virginia by yourself <laughs> as a woman of color. And so they would actually hop in the car with me sometimes, run up with friends. Um, and so it's just been, it was for us, like we just figured out how to make it work um, and then there was also a great facility called the Alderson House whereby it provided um, access to low-cost housing you pay what you could afford mm. which made it extremely accessible to families um, who couldn't afford the gas Wow and the hotel Wow yeah. and that's just that was uh, kind of a independent yeah exactly organization. that's 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 amazing I, it's rare to hear about something like uh, things like that and maybe there are more things out there that are like that more organizations Teresa I mean without I don't want to go through and uh, all of your experiences but you met a lot of different people uh, while in prison different from different backgrounds who had different types of convictions what are some of the things I mean as you were kind of you know interacting with them, getting to know them, are, were there anything that kind of stuck in your mind and what was your thought process as you were interacting with them? Well, I often say that when I went to prison, I, I was afraid. I was afraid of the women who I thought were gonna be so much more different than I was. When I got there, what I realized was we were more alike than we were different. Mm. We had come from different backgrounds, um, had different experiences, but in the end, we all wanted the same thing. We wanted to return back to our families, our communities, be better than uh, as individuals and contribute in ways that, you know, for many of us that we had not um, prior to. And we all wanted our freedom. And so that was the thing that I think bonded us together. I often tell people I met some of the most amazing people um, in my life while I was in prison. And it's a microcosm of the United States is disproportionately black and brown disproportionately low economic, um, people who come from lower economic status. But I met, I was in prison with politicians. I was in prison with um, corporate executives. I was in prison with prostitutes, you know, and people who just had severe addictions and needed, you know, treatment and not prison. So as you're there uh, incarcerated and, and Lauren, you're going and visiting, at some point during the years that uh, that you all were uh, in the situation, where how did this idea of mission launch, or how did the idea of what you're going to do afterwards start creeping into the conversation? Yeah. Um, so we actually, I was uh, 
during this time while mom was incarcerated, I enrolled in a, a business program at Johns Hopkins University. Um, and I've become addicted to all these personal testing. So I was like sitting in the Myers-Briggs and strengths <laughs> finders and all these things. And so when I would come to visit, oftentimes mom and I would sit down in the visiting room and we would have conversations and she would tell me about some of the women that she's meeting. And I would send her these tests. And for us, it was really like, you know, this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to do this work. And so we would have a ton of conversations actually. And Lauren's undergrad is in um, sociology. So yeah. the reality is she was going to pick a social topic. Yeah. It just so happened this topic picked us. And after it picked us, we too, you know, said yes, you know, that this is what we want to do. And it, and I think our uh, decision point was in a visiting room when I had uh, read an article and it said something about seven out of 10 children who have an incarcerated parent are more likely to go to prison. And that disturbed me deeply. And on this day when Lauren was visiting, we were outside and there were lots of children running around visiting their their mothers and grandmothers and aunts. And I just said to Lauren, let's count 10 kids and let's see which three make or we think are going to make it. Like we can't live in that type of a society. And I think in that moment, we both said yes, that this is what we were going to make our life work. And from there, it was just a matter of how. And what was important to us was when people come home from prison, they're deserving of a fair chance. A judge has determined that their sentence is over, and it's important that society and communities, that we do our part to let people come home and to allow families to reconnect. Um, you know, the statistics are that somewhere around 650,000 people are released from prison, which means 650,000 people have an opportunity to reconnect to family. Wow. So. This we're only halfway through, by the way. We're gonna, <laughs> the the real exciting part of this is how you all launched your uh, business and the people that you're helping now. Um, and so we're gonna get into that. You need to stick with us for this conversation. When you're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show, we'll be right back after these messages. All right, welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung with the Center for American Progress. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, we're talking about the criminal justice system and helping people who come out of prison who are formerly incarcerated uh, get back on their feet and uh, reintegrate into society. Uh, the number here is 1-888-6LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-7543. And um, we, uh, we just left off before the break uh, talking about, uh, Teresa, your experience, uh, incarcerated and, uh, Lauren traveling and the idea that you have, uh, that you had starting mission launch. And so, uh, Lauren, again, mission launch, was it, is it now what you thought it was going to be when you started or has it evolved in any way? We have gone through uh, several pivots. So for anyone who's from the tech community, the book, the lean startup, um, is, uh, kind of for a while was Holy Bible. And that's a philosophy that we use, which was basically you start with an idea and you just go like you don't build, you know, a huge plane. You just figure out how to get in the air. Um, so Mission Launch has taken some pivots. So we have not done a hackathon um, probably in like the last 12 to 18 months. Um, but the truth of the matter is it was the early days of the hackathons that gave us a lot of our great ideas. And, and so, Teresa, tell us about some of the people that you have been able to work with um, through Mission Launch and the experiences that they're going through now. Excellent. Um, I think back to one of uh, 
a gentleman who we work with who had served a five-year prison sentence. He had a bachelor, uh, uh, undergrad degree in um, graphics design, I believe it was. And when he came home, he wanted to use that talent around criminal justice, and mostly because he couldn't find a job anywhere else and kind of settled on, maybe I can bring my skill set. So he did that. We um, helped him to become an entrepreneur and to really put that skill set to work. But then later, he entered into a relationship, and we were able to help him just navigate to um, supporting his now fiance in a family business. And so what we've determined is for a lot of people, they can't find jobs. And if you can't find a job, you have to create income for yourself. And um, I've coached many people going to prison, people coming home, and currently, and I'm working with a woman who has a PhD, which shows, again, all types of people Mm. are going to prison, who has great skill sets, but no one will give her a second chance. And I'm glad you said you brought up that example because the question I was going to ask you was, um, you know, you went into prison as an entrepreneur in business uh, with work experience. And so do you find, um, you know, what are the things that people need as they go out, come out of prison? including people who may have a more, um, you know, more experience in business or more education and so forth. Well, it's kind of, I'm in this place where I'm really trying to understand, is it harder to have lots of resources and to have had a life of self-sufficiency prior to incarceration or not? I'm watching people who I know from both ends of the spectrum and we all struggle kind of the same. One is it's just hard to come home because home has changed so much. People in life have moved on. Um, Often your community, new roads, bridges, all of these things have happened. Um, You have to, for a lot of people, depending on what we're applying for and where you live in the country, you have to check this box that says, have you ever been to prison? When I applied for my first apartment, the box said, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And I thought, ever? My God, like, when do I have to stop saying yes Mm -hmm. to that particular question? But when people come home from prison, they need jobs, they need home, they need support system, and sometimes they need counseling because there's maybe was trauma associated with them going to prison and the trauma of being in prison, coupled with the trauma of coming home and just trying to reconnect. But it's important that people just latch to some type of uh, resources, but the main thing is you have to have work. And so inclusive work is a real strong part of the work Mission Launch does. We have a caller on line one, Michael from the Bronx. You have a question for Lauren and Therese. Uh, You're on the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you. Good day, everybody. Um, What you guys are doing is very commendable, but I want to direct your attention to the fact of the number of people that are wrongly imprisoned, innocent people whose um, due process was violated um, due to racial or gender um, prejudices from um, police misconduct or prosecutorial misconduct. And when you take into account also of the current president of the United States just recently giving a speech to a bunch of police officers, encouraging them to engage in violence towards people they apprehend and forget about um, the the basic Miranda rights, you know, it's very troubling. And I'm just wondering and guessing that those that were wronged by the system, they got to be maybe five to ten times more traumatized than those that know that um, they did wrong and deserve 
I don't want to use the word deserve to be in prison, but I think you get the idea mm-hmm. of um, those that were wronged by the people who are yeah. supposed to protect them. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Michael. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about right now things that we can do and the society can do for people who are in prison, but there is the other part of criminal justice system in terms of the the ways that people get involved and yeah. into the system. I mean, you all have been working with a lot of different people. Any experiences that speak to Michael's question? Absolutely. Um, I have a good friend of mine um, who served 27 years in prison and he was wrongfully convicted and was released. And so, um, Imagine how, he, you know, when I tell my story, I tell it from one perspective, but imagine how he had to feel coming home 27 years later. He and I were just together um, in Michigan, and he was telling me that when he went to prison, that phones were in, uh, our cell phones were in bags, and they were the size of a sneaker. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, then he comes home with all of this amazing technology, and he lost 27 years of his life. I think one of the things, Michael, that's so important is for storytelling and mm-hmm. for people like my friend Ronald to come out and tell his story because people need to see the various faces of people who go to prison and we need to hear the stories and we need for the general public to understand and garner some level of empathy that there are just so many paths to um, incarceration and not we don't send one type of person to prison and we have an imperfect system. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I would just add is I think part of criminal justice for me is actually a very confusing topic because it is both complex and complicated, as a friend of mine said. Like, it's complicated because there's so many different factors and so many different distinctions of the system. And we say the criminal justice system, like, it's one system. It's actually a bunch of systems yeah. together, right? And so if you think of it like the human body, it's like we we address it kind of like this really broad stroke wise when in fact you wouldn't treat a kidney issue you know the way you would treat same way you would treat a brain issue right and so we we don't make the distinctions yeah that's a great point i mean in terms of it's so broad like we're talking about uh, even solutions all the things that you're mentioning here uh, and this is just after somebody comes out of the system right we're talking about uh, the basics of life, of housing, of employment, uh, of just stability and maintaining stability and, and starting all over again. And, and Lauren, one of the things that, that I think is striking about your story with your mother here is that you maintained the family relationship throughout the process. Um, in terms of the people that you work with, with Mission Launch, uh, can you tell uh, any kind of difference yeah. of the people who have that support structure, whether it's family or friends or community or whatever, uh, uh, as opposed to people who may be struggling with that as well. Absolutely. So one of the things we, we look at is like, um, in our experience, we've come down to people have six basic needs, right, regardless of who you are. Um, and so we're talking about everyone has some level of legal support they're going to need. They're going to need some housing. They're going to need to be able to earn income. They're going to have uh, a need for health care access. Um, one thing we don't always talk about is they need to be able to enter the financial market and bankability. Um, and the other one is they need community, right? You, like, we are human beings. We are community-based people. Some cultures are more community-based than others. Um, Some feel like women are more community-based than others. And so what I know is oftentimes when mom and I go places, people come up to me and give me hugs, women who've been to prison. And they're like, just seeing you with your mother gives me hope Mm. that me and my kids can one day reconcile. And I think for us, it's always been, in one sense, we feel like it's important for us sometimes to be seen together, to show that even though this very 
traumatizing thing happens, which is really designed to create dysfunction in families, it is possible to still struggle and still remain connected. Yeah, and it, it wasn't all kind of this springtime roses. It was absolutely that. none of that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was very challenging. I will say that I anticipated at some point in my life, like most adults do, that you may get in a position where your children have to take care of you. I didn't expect that to come in my 30s. Mm. And so for me, I was preparing Lauren to enter the world and at the same time preparing her to incense be my caregiver yeah uh teresa the issue of um women in the justice system and the number of women that have been incarcerated i mean the statistics are incredible the dramatic increase in uh in the number of women who are in the criminal justice system uh what are the special issues if any are there any kind of special issues that we need to be cognizant of as a community um, as a society about uh, dealing with women um, and their their needs in the criminal justice system and in prison well statistics show that um, for a lot of women um, there is a trauma that's associated with a woman going to prison and so I think one of the things that's important is to make sure that we are looking at mental health um, and yet we're not assigning another label to a person. Like you don't want to be a person who has a felony conviction and now I'm being labeled as a person with mental health issues. So I think we have to really work on mental health as a whole in the country. Um, But in addition to that, most women are uh, the sole provider of their children. Mm. And so when we think about women, we have to think about family. Um, Whether there's a spouse or a partner involved, it does not matter if they're children those children are heavily reliant on their mother. And in order for us to break the cycle of incarceration, we have to pay special attention to women. And I'm just drawing lessons from your story because the things that um, I worked on when we when I was in the Obama Justice Department and then also now here at the Center for Breaking Progress, I mean, children of incarcerated parents was such a, 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 an important topic, especially those times of visitation. And Lauren, you were a little bit older yeah. than a lot of uh, the people that you even saw in, uh, around the, and um, other people around the country. Um, but the specific issue of child traumatization yeah. Um, because of a loved one's involvement with the criminal justice system. How do you, what, how do you see that, um, and how do you deal with that with the people that you work with on the Yeah, outside? so what's interesting is I tell people, mom and I all the time, we say we're extremely fortunate because I was older. I said, but the reality is I still experienced um, trauma from her leaving, mm. and I didn't realize that truthfully until years later, in which I'm realizing, like, when did this happen? Like my behavior changed a lot, even for me. And so what we're finding oftentimes is that children need to be able to be stable and truthfully, actually kind of bringing this back to reentry, reentry is one of the most disruptive times in a child's life because children adapt. And so if a parent leaves, they find a way to kind of find a new normal. And then when a parent comes back, it kind of brings this new dynamic of who do I listen to? Is it my grandmother or an auntie or am I in the system? Am I out the system? And so oftentimes that disruption of a parent's return, which some of us feel like, oh, everyone's home and let's just go back to normal, actually is when families need the most support. Um, Because if a child is especially still in early education, it, it disrupts their school. And one one bad year oftentimes leads people down a very rough path. 
So in this entire spectrum, this entire universe of criminal justice reform, and let's focus on the reentry side more than anything else. If there's kind of an overlooked area or uh, something that you would not even overlook, but just something that you think should uh, that policymakers, that um, you know, society, businesses, anybody should just pay more attention to, what would that be? I think for me, um, and then Lauren, you can jump in, it's definitely uh, how technology has changed the world. Mm -hmm. And so a person who is gone for even five years could be 20 generations away from technology. Um, And technology has been used in third world countries to move groups and populations of people closer to the core and safety of society. And so I think technology is something that we have to look at. How can we use it to help individuals when they're coming home from prison get back on their feet. You can find apps on, you know, prison break and things that are not quite as productive, but where are the apps that help people navigate back to community and back to the resources that they need? Yeah, and I would just add from two things that I'm kind of currently obsessed with processing is like, what is the corporate social responsibility um, aspect and conversation around criminal justice? You know, there are some corporations that have benefited um, from actually prison labor. You know, it, it's come out in years and some of them have tried to backtrack. Um, and so for me, I feel like if a major corporation has outsourced their labor to incarcerated people for pennies on the dollar, then you should also be willing to hire people when they come home, right? Um, At the same time, I think in philanthropy, there's this conversation um, around how do we make the right investments? Because here's the truth. The truth is we spend $300 or $30,000 up to words of like almost $60,000 to incarcerate a person per year. And the average reentry program receives about $8,000 per person. The math is just horribly off on the investments, right? And so if we're spending all of this money to incarcerate people and we're like, we will give you $8,000 for the one time to get this person rehabilitated, almost the one since community organizations have their hands tied behind their back. And so for me, I feel like from a philanthropy side, we have to have conversations around smart investments. Maybe we need to create bigger funds and pull resources together. Um, And then from the corporate side, I feel like, you know, some corporations actually need to be bought into this very differently. This has been a, an amazing conversation. Um, for those of you who want to learn more about your story and Mission Launch, where can they find you? Yes, our website is mission-launch.org. Um, I'm on Twitter at Lauren Hodge, and Mom is more cool than me on Twitter. I'm uh, Teresa, <laughs> without an H, Teresa Y. Hodge on all things social media. And uh, Lauren is uh, with an I instead of an E. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, and both of you are way cooler than me on social media. I just want you to know. So um, you have at least one person. <laughs> behind you so uh, thank you both for this amazing thank conversation thank you for uh, we really appreciate it uh, you're listening to the Leslie Marshall show we'll be right back right after this break life liberty and the pursuit of truth the Leslie Marshall show give her a call now at 8886 Leslie but here's the deal here's why it's a little spooky because North Korea now claims to be able to reach Guam with their missiles and destroy it with enveloping fire. Enveloping fire? Is Kim Jong-un launching a missile or a series of erotic novels? We're back on the Leslie Marshall Show and joined by Victoria Jones. Victoria, what news do we have on North Korea? Oh, well, we've got plenty of news on North Korea. And hi, Ed. Um, So... President Trump has said more. Yes, but wait, there's more on North (laughs) Korea. He has topped his remarks of earlier in the week about fire and fury. He uh, spoke briefly to reporters this afternoon uh, in front of his 
golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. And he said, frankly, the people that were questioning that statement, Fire and Fury, was it too tough? Maybe it wasn't tough enough. They've been doing this to our country for a long time, many years. It's about time that somebody stuck up for the people of this country and for the people of other countries. So if anything, maybe that statement wasn't tough enough. He went on. We're backed by 100% of our military, he said, and we're backed by many other leaders. He did not name any of them, by the way. Um, he also said North Korea better get their act together or they're going to be in trouble like few nations have ever been in trouble. And he also then proceeded to trash a whole series of presidents. Victoria, uh, well, if... If we're yes. going to be if we're going to be here tomorrow, and that seems like it's more up in the air every hour yes. that passes by, yes. we we have another crisis that's going on in the country, and this one is a real serious one in terms of the yes. opioid crisis. Uh, any other updates on what the administration is yes. doing on this? Yes. Uh, earlier in the week, you may remember there was a, he had a meeting on the opioid crisis at Bedminster, and people were expecting a national emergency to be declared, and he did not declare one. That was like Tuesday. Well, today, he did declare the country's opioid crisis a national emergency. So we're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money on it. That is um, something that is shocking because, you're, as you're saying, uh, it was a change in position from something that was announced earlier. Victoria, thanks for joining us. Uh, on the opioid crisis, um, the, the commission that came out with the information, uh, with the, the, the report, or at least the interim report, uh, really did have some decent things in there in terms of talking about uh, naloxone and in order to prevent overdoses. It talked about medicated-assisted uh, treatment, and it also talked about making sure that there are good Samaritan laws so that somebody who calls 911 while, somebody, while a friend or somebody that's with them is uh, is going through a, a, an overdose a situation uh, will be able to do so without fear of uh, being arrested. And so there were a lot of good things, including that uh, declaring a state of uh, national emergency. This is a, a an, an incredibly uh, big problem, to say the least, uh, something that our country needs to invest resources in. This has been great. Uh, I'm Ed Chung. This has been the Leslie Marshall Show. Appreciate it. Hope you all have a great day, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow.